This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well, this morning's going to be a little bit different, um, perhaps less preachy, less of a sermon, leaning towards more teaching and training. Um, but uh, we, we believe that what I've got to say this morning is of really important significance for every single person in our church because we're all a part of the body, we're all a part of a team, and... Um, and we believe that this will significantly shape our church life experience. And so what we're going to be doing this morning is looking at our five team values. The five values that we have that we would hope shape every single team and every single person's experience who serves on a team here at Anchor. Um, and so let me just um, frame it by saying this. I remember uh, a number of years ago uh, preaching at uh, City on a Hill, Melbourne. Um, which is a, a church that we're friends with, part of the Acts 29 network, um, good friends with Pastor Guy Mason, got invited to preach down there and just experience their church as an outsider coming in and observing. And what I noticed were there were some really significant patterns of culture that were there. I noticed that a lot of their staff used the language of, um, we want to meet you where you're at and serve you. And, and so they would say that to me, how can, we ser- how can we be of service to you? How can we be of service to you? And that didn't happen by accident. That's a part of their team culture of staff asking people, how can we serve you? The other thing I noticed was that there was this real sense they had a pre-gathering huddle before they did their service, same as what we do. Um, but they'd injected some values into that. And I came away from that trip, um, hopefully having blessed the church with the Word of God, but also being blessed by seeing into a team culture that was inspiring. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of being on a team that you've been inspired by, perhaps a work team. You started a new job and the team culture of that work team is inspiring. It's magnetic. You want to be a part of it. Or perhaps the opposite of that, you've been a part of a team that has exuded all of these negative cultural characteristics that has repelled you from that team, perhaps a sporting team. Uh, perhaps a, a work team, uh, perhaps even quite possibly a church team that you have been a part of. And so we want to look at being intentional about our teams here at Anchor. And so we're going to look at our five cultural values. The reality is that every church, every team has a culture. Whether you want to have one or not, you've got one. Whether you're intentional about that culture or not, you've got a culture. And more often than not, if you're unintentional about it, because we're sinful, broken people, we default to negative patterns in our teams. And so what we're hoping to do is develop a culture that is intentional about some things that we believe are biblical and would shape our teams to be teams that are healthy and magnetic and powerful and fun and creative and life-giving. And so that's our hope, and I want to walk through that this morning. But the question is, why teams? Why teams? If you think of the images that we get in Scripture of what we are as a church, we're a bride, we're the people of God, but one of the most predominant ones is that we're a body. We are the body of Christ. Think of Paul's metaphor in 1 Corinthians 12 where he says to the church that you are the body of Christ and in this body there is both unity and diversity. There is a sense of unity because there is one church, there is one body under one head, the Lord Jesus. 
But there's also a sense of diversity because God hasn't made every single person in this body a hand or a foot. He's given this body the full expression of different parts of the body in all of its beautiful diversity. And so every single person has a different gift, a different role, and a different part to play. And so as we look at this image of what church ought to be like biblically, a body, we see that what that makes us really is a team, to use maybe more modern language. Or perhaps a team of teams. When we're a larger church, we've got lots of different teams serving in different capacities. And so we really can't get beyond the fact that we serve shoulder to shoulder with people. And that makes us a team because of the reality that we are the body of Christ. And so what does it look like to apply biblical categories and gospel-shaped thinking towards our team experience and team culture? And so that's what we want to do this morning. We are, a, we are a church that is entirely interdependent on each other. And that's the way that God designed it to be. And so at Anchor, we, we like to say that we need each other. We need each other's gifts. We need the diversity that that brings. And that everyone has a part. No one does nothing here at Anchor. We've all got a gift that God has given us to be used for the good of the church. And so we've decided that the staff have been working on this. It took us quite some time. In fact, I was looking at when the design, um, Rachel Curl did the design for this, and she sent us the design files. And I saw on the little bottom, just her artwork was like, you know, client, anchor church, date, February 2017. And so we've been working on this for quite some time, and the staff spent... Um, heaps of staff meetings trying to think through this. We had 12 to begin with. We whittled it down to seven. We consulted externally with an organizational psychologist who said perhaps we should go to three, and we compromised on five. Um, and look, this isn't, this isn't um, the only thing that we value here at Anchor. There are a, munch, a bunch of other things that we value, but this is specifically things that we value as it is pertinent to teams. So how is this pertinent to our staff team? How is this pertinent to your GC? How is this pertinent to the band as they serve, to the kids team as they serve, to whatever team you're a part of? These five values are important for us. Why? To make your experience of your team better. We want you to enjoy it. We want you to flourish and thrive in your gifts. We believe that if these five values are lived out, that, um, that horrible experience of feeling burnt out in ministry would become far rarer because you have all of these things in your team that are continually fueling you and building you up and strengthening you. We have a team where there's honesty and transparency. We have a team where there is encouraging words spoken. And so we believe that if these values are lived out, our teams will experience less burnout, more longevity. We believe if we live these out, they'll be the types of teams that people would say, I want to be in that team. That kids' ministry, I want to be a part of that kids' team because that team is awesome. I will do whatever it takes to get onto that team. Rather than having team leaders begging and groveling people, would you please consider prayerfully joining my team? We want people to be putting their hands up left, right, and center, saying that is the best expression of a team I've ever seen. I want to, I want to be a part of that team because that team is dynamic, it's powerful, it's creative, it's awesome. I'm in. Additionally, we want to see... Um, not the gospel just taught in our church, not biblical values just spoken of in our church, but them translating into real life application. So we can teach this stuff, but are we actually living it out? 
We want to see our teams shaped by the values that we claim to believe. And you know, it's actually crazy how often churches don't do that. How often churches would have a, have a value of grace and then live in a way that's completely contrary to the thing that they preach. And so it's important for us to allow our beliefs to shape our teams. And so our five cultural values, we believe are powerful. We believe they are shaping. We believe that we're doing them. It's not that we're not doing these things, but we want to be intentional about doing them across every team in the life of our church. So here are our five cultural values. I think we've got a picture of them on the screen. So the first is pursuing excellence. The second is grace. The third is expectancy. The fourth is fun. And the fifth is honor. And I'm going to preach them in a different order this morning. I'm going to unpack these. I'm going to show you how we get these from the Bible And uh, I'm going to try and share some stories and give us creative ways of implementing these into our church life. So, is everyone ready? I'm wearing red shoes today as a culture of fun. All right? So I'm trying to embody this. I did say to the guys before, if I had gold shoes, it probably would be three and a half times the amount of fun, but they didn't tend to agree with me at all. I would like gold shoes. I think everyone should own a pair of shoes that is fun. Right? That... Life would be fun if we all owned a pair of shoes that were fun. Anyway, all right. Let me pray and we, we're going to dive into this. Father God, we thank you that you're a God who speaks to us. We thank you that you're a God who is intimately involved in every aspect of our lives, including our teams, including the relationships that we have in our church. And God, we want to repent of the times where we've claimed to believe something in our head, but haven't lived that out in a culture in our church. And so would you help us by the power of your spirit to be the type of people that you call us to be, to be the type of church you call us to be. We pray that these values would be embodied and lived in our church. And we ask you to help us to do the hard work of living them out. Because we confess that we are sinful people and we often default to negative patterns. And so we ask, Father, please, by the power of your Spirit, speak to us now. Convict us of the areas that we need to grow in and help us have a church that is full of teams that thrive, that grow, that are fun, that are contagious. We ask that you would work for your glory. And we pray it in the powerful name of Jesus. And God's people said, Amen. Well, the first is a culture of expectancy, a culture of expectancy. It's a type of culture that anticipates God to work, that is ready, that is leaning in, that is looking for what God will do. And you might think, well, hang on a second, isn't expectancy just simply the power of positive thinking? Like if you believe it, it will happen. I suggest you that expectancy is not the placebo effect. This is not saying, despite any reality and grounding in truth, believe something to be true and it will happen. No, no, expectancy is grounded in the character and the promises of God. If it's not, put it out the door. This is what uh, Paul says about God. This is how he's expectant about God's character and his purposes. This is what Paul says in in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. He says this about God. Now to him, that is God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, 
according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. What does that verse say? To him who is able to do more than we ask? No, it doesn't. To him who is able to do far more than we ask? It doesn't even say that. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask? It doesn't even say that. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask and imagine. That is the God that we worship. And that is the type of character that ought to breed a deep sense of expectancy in our church and in our teams. Because that means that you cannot ask God for something beyond his power to give it to you. You can't ask God for something beyond his power to give it to you. You can't even imagine something beyond God's power to give to us as a church. Why? Because God's powerful. Because God is able. Because there is nothing beyond his ability to do. That's what Paul says here as he praises God to him who is able to do far abundantly more than all we can ask or imagine. In case you're wondering, he's trying to make an emphasizing point there. He's loading up these terms on top of each other. This is the type of God that we worship. If you think about um, where we're at at the moment in the sporting world, at least for winter sports, we're in the preseason time where teams are... Or, you know, kind of being finalized and the, the run sheets are there and we know who's playing for who and all of the transfer windows kind of finished. And as I'm looking at the, the team list for the Parramatta Eels this year, I'm like, it's pretty good. We've got a pretty good team. The Hain Plains back. I'm not sure if that's good or bad just yet. But we've got a good team. We finished well last year. And there's a sense, because of the team's track record, because of how we finished the end of last year, there's a sense of expectancy about how they're going to perform this year. Or you think about the Roosters, for example. I mean, they've just had a massive spending spree at the end of last year. They've got some of the best players in their positions in the game, all in the one team. Do you think that the owners of the Roosters, that the Roosters supporters, that the rugby league community has low expectation for that team? Of course not. All the bookies are giving them the shortest odds because they think that they're going to win or they think the Melbourne Storm is going to win and so all the money is being gambled on those teams because there's a huge sense of expectancy because of what you see. Quality players, good coach, good track record. We think this team is going to win. There's a heightened sense of expectation. As we look at our God, as we look at his character, as we look at his track record, how can we have a sense of pessimism? about what God wants to do. The plan of God, His purpose is to make all things new, to bring every need about under the name of Jesus. Now, those, are, those are significant, world-changing purposes that we have. They do not afford us a sense of pessimism about God. In fact, I would suggest in the same way that the roosters or the Melbourne storm would be offended by you saying to them that you believe they would get the wooden spoon, it would be offensive to God if we pushed our pessimism upon his character and his purposes. Low expectations breed a culture of pessimism. And the power and character of God give no room for that. We must be an expectant people because of the God that we worship. 
We believe that every single time the Word of God is opened, that it does not return to Him void and empty. It achieves the purposes that He has set for it. We believe that every single time that the people of God gather to sit humbly under the Word, to declare His praises, that God is at work transforming lives. We believe that every single time a GC comes together, that God is expecting us to minister to each other, to encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. We expect that God is going to use us because that's the pattern that He's given us time and time again in the Scriptures. The primary mission strategy for the world is who? Not a rhetorical question. Thank you, the church, whoever said that. The church. We ought to expect God to use us because that's what He's told us He will do. And so we need to develop a culture of expectancy. And perhaps our pessimism has been shaped more by our experience. Well, we just don't see people coming to faith anymore. This is really tough soil in Sydney. Church is hard work. We can't really expect God to transform lives anymore. God is a powerful God. He's able to use us. And we ought to be teams. We ought to be a church that is expectant. And what does that look like? I think an expectant team is a prayerful team because God is the one who does the work. It's not about us. It's not about us doing something. God is the one who transforms lives. And so an expectant team is a prayerful team. We're pleading, God, please do your thing. Help us to be faithful to what you've called us to. But God, we need you to give the increase. We need you to give to do the work. We need you to transform lives. And I think a team that is expectant actually has the goalposts shifted because it changes what you look for. It changes what you evaluate. Many years ago, I remember um, Steve Vassalo, who leads our, our worship teams, our corporate worship teams, our bands, um, training a number of young guys in our youth ministry, including Joel and, and Isaac Vigliani, who are part of our church. And one of the things he tried to inject into that team was a prayer. Before they played as a band, as a worship band, they would pray a prayer of expectancy. And what that did was it shifted the goalposts for the team. No longer were they looking for how do we perform, were we excellent. They're looking outward to say, did God work? Did people meet Jesus? Did they encounter? Were people blessed? Were people ministered to? The team that is expectant about what God is going to do shifts the focus. It's really actually not about changing God. God doesn't change. It's about changing us. It's about changing what we look for. It's about changing what we evaluate. It's about changing what we value. And it's about valuing what God values. And God values changing people's lives. And so teams ought to be expectant. Expectant teams. Prayerful. Looking for the right things. That's the first cultural value. The second is to pursue excellence. Pursue excellence. Now, let's be honest. That word is a dirty word in Christian circles, is it not? Excellence. As soon as you hear that word, some of you are ready to vomit in your mouth right now. You think church and excellence, right? Isn't that anti-gospel? Isn't excellence about performance and outcomes? Isn't that completely contrary to what the gospel is about, a free gift of grace? I want to suggest to you it depends on the direction of your pursuit of excellence. Is your pursuit of excellence an outward one, that you would be noticed, that people would see your effort, that you would be praised for what you have done? Then perhaps, yeah, that's not gospel. Is the focus of your pursuit of excellence an inward one, the center of your trust, that you're not necessarily trusting in God to transform lives. Your trust is in 
how good our design team is, how slick our band is, how great the communication is, how good the morning tea is. And if those things aren't right, God can't possibly work. Is it the center of your trust? Yeah, then that's not gospel. But if the pursuit of excellence for us is about an act of worship towards God and an act of love towards neighbor, that's not anti-gospel at all. You see, the answer to the cultures, our culture's obsession with performance-based outcomes and excellence isn't to lower the standard and accept average as our benchmark. No, no, the answer is to pursue excellence for the right reasons, to pursue excellence as an act of worship and an act of love towards neighbor. Come with me to Malachi chapter 1, where God, sorry, just before that, we've called this value, you'll notice up there, pursuing excellence. Uh, because excellence in and of itself is a very subjective thing. It's very hard to measure whether or not something was excellent. What is the difference between great and excellent? Very hard to know, right? This is more about the journey. This is more about the effort, the heart that goes into it. Not so much about the outcome. Now, we care about the outcome. We care about the end result. Right? But what we care more about is the effort that is put in behind that, the preparation that comes with it. Now, the question is, does God care about that? Does God care about the effort and the heart, or does he just care about the outcome in the end? Have a look at what Malachi, the prophet Malachi says to the people of God in Malachi chapter 1, verse 7. This is the people of God talking back to God. But you say, how have we polluted you, God? By saying, the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And then down to verse 10. Oh, that there were some among you who would shut the doors that you may not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. You see, Israel's half-hearted, reluctant offerings were repulsive to God. He's not honored by their lame, crippled, blind, mangy sacrifices. And you may, he makes that comparison. You take that to the governor. You think the governor would be honored by that kind of sacrifice? Why do you think it's appropriate to offer that to me? God is not honored by the dregs, the scraps, and the leftovers in our life. God's honored by our best, by our first. That's why he calls us to give generously of the first fruits of our lives, not the leftovers. He's honored by our best. The gospel doesn't breed laziness. The gospel doesn't breed laziness. If anything, the gospel ought to produce a purified motive in us to pursue excellence, to pursue it in a way that is free from performance-oriented outcomes to pursue it as an act of worship, to pursue it as an act of love, because God has what? Given his best for us, his one and only son. He gave everything he had. He didn't withhold. He poured his love out extravagantly on us. And we ought to give God our best as an act of worship in response, not as an act of earning God's approval and love, but because he has first loved us. 
well. The gospel doesn't breed laziness, but it does purify our motives. This value here, a value of pursuing excellence, is a, a, a guard against a culture of mediocrity. Or as one author has said, mediocrity masquerading as faithfulness. See, for too often the church has made the term faithfulness its excuse for ignoring to evaluate, for lack of fruit in our lives. And we've created this false distinction between fruitfulness and faithfulness. Those things are not enemies. God values both of those things. And yes, He calls us to be faithful. But He doesn't call us to be faithful at the expense of evaluating our methods. He doesn't call us to be faithful at the expense of working hard and putting our best effort in. This value helps guard us against laziness and mediocrity because God deserves our best and people deserve our best. Just think about morning teas for an example. Far too long, the church has been satisfied to serve up international roast coffee and trays of assorted Arnott's biscuits, right? I mean, you giggle because that was your church experience or it was weak cordial and those little wafer biscuits as a kid, right? You know what our kids get at church? Brownies, homemade brownies, sometimes with white little chocolate in it. It's amazing. Our kids love morning tea. Why? Well, our trust wasn't in, well, gee, people will never come to Anchor or they'll never get saved if we don't have homemade brownies. But we believed as an act of love to the people who would come here on a Sunday morning that we want to give our best effort. If you came over to my house for dinner and I made you Vegemite toast, I mean, maybe that's your thing, right? Maybe you might just totally love that and you're really honored by that. And that would be an act of honor if I knew you and I gave you Vegemite toast. But if I came over and invited you for dinner and gave you a cup of water and Vegemite toast, it wouldn't necessarily be honoring. But if I came over and we had worked hard in the kitchen and we served you up a beautiful meal, wouldn't that inspire thanks and gratitude and honor? That's what we want to be like. That's the reason our amazing, incredible morning tea teams spend their Saturday evenings and afternoons baking and cooking and preparing so that people would feel loved and honored and blessed. So that, that would create a sense of community. No one wants to stick around for trays of Arnott's assorted, but people want to stick around for homemade brownies and ice cream or whatever else is happening this morning, right? That is an act of love. It's an act of love. And it's a pursuit, an example of a pursuit of excellence. And so to honor, can we just give it up for our hospitality team, those guys who serve us on Sunday mornings? And for whoever brought ice cream this morning, thank you. And I hate you because my kids are going to be feral over lunch. Way too much sugar for our children. So a culture of pursuing excellence. Culture of expectancy. A culture of pursuing excellence. And finally, thirdly, not finally, thirdly, a culture of grace. A culture, a church that has a strong culture of pursuing excellence can very easily fall into the ditch of perfectionism and performance. And so this value guards us against that. A culture of grace. The culture of grace is a culture that actually values people over performance. We value people above performance. And we care about performance, right? We've just spoken about that. But people are more important. 
We don't value the outcome. We don't value uh, the product at the expense of relationships. That's an anti-grace culture. I want you to come to Colossians chapter 3 with me as Paul's talking to the church there about how they ought to live their lives as the body, as family. This is what he says to them in, in uh, Corinthians, Corinthians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You think of those, um, those mosaics that, that people make. You know, they, they place the tiles out on a, on a piece of concrete and they place them all out and then they put meekness and gentleness and, and all of those characteristics down and then the, the, the stuff that binds it together, the, what is that, the bit that goes in between, the grout in between the tiles, that's the love that binds it all together. That's the picture that Paul has for the church, for our teams, that people who have received grace, that people who have been forgiven by God ought to be the best at offering grace and offering forgiveness because we know what it's like to receive it. Those values ought to shape our teams profoundly. And our actions as a culture either serve to create that or to destroy that. Now we've placed this one in the middle like this. Is it in the middle on the screen? It is. Because this one is so central to everything that we do. Not only does it balance that pursuit of excellence, but this is what it really is all about. If we can't live this one out, the other four will fail. You think about Paul's action, sorry, Peter's actions uh, in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul says that he had to oppose Peter to his face because the message of grace that he claimed to preach was being undermined by his behavior because he refused to eat with the Gentiles in the presence of the Jews. And so Paul opposes him. He says, brother, the message that you preach is being contradicted by the way that you're living. That ought not to be true of the church. Our walk and our talk ought to match. And so I love this quote from Ray Ortland Jr., who just so happens to be speaking at the Acts 29 conference this week on the Gold Coast, which all of our staff and interns are going to, so pray for us. But Ray Ortland Jr. says this, Faithfulness to the gospel requires more than doctrinal purity. It requires relational beauty in our churches. And read that again, because it's so freaking good. Faithfulness to the gospel, we value that, right? Requires more than doctrinal purity. It requires relational beauty in our churches. It's possible to sincerely preach a true doctrine while at the same time utterly deny that doctrine by an anti, uh, ugly anti-gospel culture. As recipients of the grace of God, we ought to be good at offering grace to others. We give grace because we've received grace ourselves. And what that means for us in our teams, in our churches, in our gospel communities, is that when people make mistakes, we're not under the false ideal that people are perfect. Uh, when people make mistakes, and they will make mistakes, we don't respond with a sledgehammer. We respond with grace. It means that when mistakes happen, we fail forward. 
We learn from those mistakes. We grow through those mistakes. We become better as a result of those mistakes. If we're not making mistakes, we're not taking enough risks. We value that. But grace says we grow through that. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have a tough conversation. Grace doesn't mean that you ignore destructive behavior in your team. Grace doesn't mean that you avoid accountability. It's loving. It's gracious to actually do those things. That's an act of love. But grace means that we respond to each other the way that God has responded to us. Cultures of grace. If we can get this one thing right, I tell you what, our teams would look incredible. Our staff this week watched a, uh, last week, sorry, watched a training by a guy called Patrick Lencioni on five dysfunctions of a team. And um, one of the things he said is that churches are actually really good at avoiding conflict. We're conflict avoiders because we sit in a meeting and someone makes a suggestion about how we should be doing something at church and you think, mm, yep, great. And then you go away and you think, that's the worst idea ever. We will never do that. That's horrible. But you never bother to talk to the person about it under the guise of we're a gracious culture. That's not grace. That's not grace at all. That's avoiding conflict. That's stifling creativity of a team. A gracious culture is one that treats us like God treats us, that treats others the way God has treated us. God is a father who loves us and disciplines us and corrects us and rebukes us and changes us. Culture of grace. What? Think about your team and how beautiful it would look if your team embodied grace. Culture of grace. So, culture of expectancy, a culture of pursuing excellence, a culture of grace, a culture of honor is our fourth one, a culture of honor. This value guards against pride and against selfishness, a culture of honor. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says this again. These instructions come in the context of the gathered people of God in the exercise of the gifts. Paul says this to the church in Romans, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Honor is actually a subset of love. Paul says this is what it looks like to exercise love, to exercise your gifts in love, is to outdo one another in showing honor. Now, the first century Middle Eastern culture is a shame-honor culture. Right? That's how it operates. This command is profoundly countercultural in this first century context because people are seeking honor. You want honor for yourself, for your name, for your family name, for your tribe. Everyone is seeking honor and shame is, shame is so destructive. No one brings shame on your family. If your children bring shame on your family, you shame them in response. And so this comment of not seeking to receive honor, but giving it is entirely countercultural to the first century. And even though Australia is perhaps not a shame honor culture, unless maybe you've got uh, an Asian or Middle Eastern background heritage in your family, by and large, we're not a shame on a culture, but we do have blind spots that make this one difficult for us, a culture of honor. And our blind spot, our cultural blind spot, is that of the tall poppy syndrome. The tall poppy syndrome really is our communism for the ego, is that as soon as someone begins to rise up, as soon as someone is perceived to be successful, we cut them down. We bring them down to our level because we're an egalitarian society. Everyone needs to be equal. That's why Australians drive in the front seat of a taxi. 
because we don't want to be chauffeured around. I'm the same as the bloke next to me. He may be from Vietnam, he may be a refugee, but I sit in the front seat with this guy. Right? That's why we want to refer to our politicians by their first name, Malcolm, right? instead of Mr. President. Right? Australia has this tall poppy syndrome about us, and that's a sermon for another day. But that makes honouring hard for us, makes, makes it difficult for us to give honour. And have you ever noticed how self-deprecating we are when someone compliments us? Right? Someone comes up to you and says, great sermon today. Praise God. Praise Jesus. It wasn't me. It was you. It was you. Someone comes to you, uh, you know, compliments you in your service. Receive it. Say thank you. Give glory to God. Yes, God has gifted me. Yes, God has given me the grace to do this, but he's used me. I'm not a passive agent in this. That's expectancy cycling its way back in. Honor, we find it hard to do as Australians. You add to that this insidious Christian culture that we have of being the motive police, of saying, well, I'm not going to encourage this person because perhaps that'll build their ego up and it will form pride in their heart and I don't want to be the, you know, responsible for sin in their life, so I'm just not going to encourage them. And we're so busy trying to assess and judge and worry about someone else's motives that we ignore the commands of God to outdo one another in showing honor. We ignore the commands of God to encourage one another. These verses ought to devastate that suffocating combination of Aussie Christian culture that we see happening. Outdo one another in showing honor. We ought to be good at it. At the very least, we ought to be good at showing honor to one another. The gospel frees us to honor each other. Because no longer are we seeking to be honored. What more honor can you receive than being a co-heir with Christ? You stand to inherit the universe. There's not much more honor than that. Once we know that, then we stop seeking honor from everyone. We're free to give it. We're free to encourage. We're free to build others up. Because of the gospel. Because we understand what it is like to be loved and known by God. And I think in the end, it actually reveals a deep sense of insecurity when we can't honor others, when we're so afraid of doing that. The gospel frees us to do that. Outdo one another in showing honor. That looks like recognizing and acknowledging the contribution that others bring to your team. Not in a fake way, right? We don't just want to be like, you know, all of a sudden turning this completely fake culture, honoring people for something they didn't even do. That's not what this is about. This is recognizing the contribution that someone has made and acknowledging it. That's what honor is. Saying thank you to the kids' workers as, they, as you pick your children up this morning. Thank you. I noticed my children did this this week. Thank you for teaching them that. that that's so honoring. And imagine if that culture was spread across all of our teams. Wouldn't you feel so encouraged every time you served? You had five people who came and thank you for doing that. I was so blessed by the way you served this morning. A culture of honor. People deserve to be honored. It's not just that this is a, a trick for making our teams great. People actually deserve to be honored. Why? We're image bearers and God has given every single one of us a gift for the good of the church. That's why we deserve to be honored. Now, this is not a culture of groveling. This is not a culture of flattery. 
This is where we see a contribution and honor where honor is due and encourage and recognition and to celebrate it. And the other thing is that honor is not a one-way street. Right? Honor is a two-way street. We ought to give and receive honor. We ought to give and receive encouragement. And so I think we called, we've associated a number of questions and behaviors with this one. And this is my favorite. The behavior associated with this one is brag on them. Brag on them. We ought to be good at bragging on people, bragging on others, celebrating their contribution. So a culture of honor. Finally, a culture of fun. How are we doing for time? All right, I need to go fast. A culture of fun. Now, look, if I'm honest with you, this is probably the least biblical of the five cultural values, but it's no less important, and I don't think it's unbiblical entirely. It probably leans more towards the area of wisdom than it does of revelation like the others. So, but... Currently, if you work in a corporate world, there's heaps of research being done. You can read all the Harvard Review you know, things about how teams ought to be fun and creative. It, it breeds creativity when teams have fun together. So go and read all of those things. But a culture of fun guards against us taking ourselves too seriously. And if there's anyone in the world that does that, it's the church. We take ourselves too seriously all the time. We just sometimes need to chill and have some fun. That's why I wore red shoes today to try and embody that. Now, I want, to, I want to acknowledge that there is a gulf of difference between the biblical category of joy and what we call fun. Right? There, those two things, there is so much in between them, but they're not disconnected. And I think the best type of fun is often really closely connected to the biblical category of joy. And so this is what the teacher says in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 17.22 says this, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Or in Proverbs 15.15, this is the New Living Translation, For the despondent every day brings trouble. For the happy heart, life is a continual feast. What a beautiful image. For the happy heart, life is a continual feast. You know, God has created us with the capacity to laugh He's created our brains to release endorphins when that happens so that we experience happiness and joy. And those are good things. For the happy at heart, life is a continual feast. We know that to be true as a principle of life. Church, I think, ought to be more like the feast of the younger brother in the house than the argument with the older brother outside in the field. A party. And if you were here for Celebration Sunday last year, that's what we preached on. I love what, to quote Brian Houston, he says, Church should be enjoyed, not endured. I like that. It may be cliched, but church ought to be enjoyed. This, we ought to have fun. Of all the people in the world with the good news of the gospel, shouldn't we have some fun at least, a little bit? Anyone? Thank you. We should have a bit of fun as a church. Because we have good news. We have good news. But let me. this is not a veneer of fakeness. Or to use a John Piper term, this is not chipper. You know, this, is, this is not disconnecting from reality. This doesn't deny grief. This doesn't deny um, anxiety or depression or mental illness. It's not, it's not saying that there is an appropriate time for those things to be expressed. That's reality. 
We're not asking the person who wrestles with depression to put an airline hostess smile on their face as they surf. That contradicts our value of authenticity. But what we are saying is that, at the very least, the good news we preach, the family that God has created, we ought, we ought to be a people of party and fun and celebration. And so we should have fun. We should enjoy what we do, not just doing it because the task is enjoyable. Sometimes the task isn't enjoyable. I'll give you an example of that. Bump in, bump out is not necessarily the thing that everyone jumps at to serve in, right? We all know it. The post goes up on the family page. Hey, guys, my GC is rostered on for bump in this week. Uh, I can't do it because I'm away. Can anyone volunteer for me? Crickets. You look at it, it's like seen by 179 people. No likes, no comments, no responses, right? But you know, in our GC a couple of weeks ago, we were sharing, um, just setting our, the things that we wanted to do this year as a GC, uh, the things that we wanted to put in place, our, our covenant. And one of the guys, Jez, in our group said that we were, our group was rusted on for bumping a few weeks ago. And he said, um, you know, Chris, Chris and I were doing chairs together and it was actually fun. I had fun as Chris and I were joking around and doing, you know, a bit of manual, physical work. And it was fun. And shouldn't that be the case that the person that you serve alongside of, irrespective of how menial we deem the task to be, ought to have some fun together. And if we create that culture, that completely shifts the way that people think about Bump in, bump out. If that is fun, if that is enjoyable, if we get to enjoy relationships, if we get to enjoy the value of setting up a church that people can come and encounter Jesus, if we remind ourselves of the purpose of that, that ought to be fun. And so that ought to be the thing that people are like, yes, and I'm not, I'm not saying this so that this culture shifts. Probably a bad example. It wasn't in my notes. I'm not saying that the next time someone posts up on our family page, I want a thousand people to put their hand up for it, although that would be nice as an application from today's sermon. But I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. Anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to move on. What I want to say is this. We tend, I think, to default perhaps to negative sinful patterns of behavior when it comes to our teams. If we're not intentional about these things, we just default We've all got a culture. And perhaps maybe your team has a person who really shapes culture in that team in a positive way. Praise God. That person is a gift to your team. But what would it look like if every single person in that team began to embody some of these values and live them out? These teams would be teams that are awesome. They would be teams that are fueling you. There would be teams that you want to continue to serve in for the long term. There would be teams where you feel so encouraged by the contribution that you've made that you're spurred on to pursue excellence more the next time because you knew that that was blessing to the person that you were able to serve. Those are the types of teams we want to create. So expectancy. Expectancy guards against a culture of pessimism. Pursuing excellence guards against a culture of mediocrity. Grace. Guards against a culture of critical, criticalness and harshness. Honor. Guards against a culture of pride and selfishness. And fun. Guards against taking us too seriously. Imagine what it would look like if our teams looked like that. My encouragement to you is not just to let this kind of be, yeah, yeah, that's the thing that Matt talked about. 
It takes someone doing something a little bit awkward because your culture hasn't really looked like that to just step out and start to live these. And I promise you, our teams will be phenomenal and incredible. So that's our prayer. That's our hope. Come to the the, the volunteers all in tonight. Be with your team. Think about how you start to live these things out in reality, not just in theory. And let's see what God does in terms of transforming our church and, and, and making us to be the people of God that he calls us to be. Yeah? I'm going to pray. We're going to respond. Our band's going to come up in a sec. There are three ways to respond this morning. We're going to respond by having some fun and celebrating the good news of Jesus. And you can dance if you want because the kids dance down here. And wouldn't it be great to just have that sense of inhibition about us, not worry about what people are thinking about us and just praise God and have fun. So we can have some fun. Our prayer team is up the back. You can identify our prayers with the orange lanyard that's around the, their neck. They would love to pray for you. Anything that you have need for this morning, our prayer team is there. Please make use of them. They're beautiful people. They love Jesus. And the prayers of the righteous are power, powerful and effective. Yeah. So go to the back, get prayer. And we're responding to the Lord's Supper, a celebration of the good news of the gospel. And so as you come this morning, thinking about these five values, remember, Jesus is the one who embodied these things for us. Grace, giving all of himself. Right, and eat and celebrate this. If you love Jesus, this meal is for you. So come forward, celebrate, let's respond, let's worship God together. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray. Father God, we thank you that you're good. Uh, we long to be the church that embodies the realities that we've spoken of this morning. We want to do them well. We need the, the power of your spirit to do that. And so please work powerfully in the life of our church. Please help us to live these things out for your glory for the good of every person on every team, for the sake of the lost in our city, for our joy. We ask it in the powerful name of Jesus. And God's people said, Amen.